G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendour and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bikthar and Abagtha, Sethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shetha, Admatha, Tashish, Miris, Marsina, and Memukan the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memikan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the Queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the Queen's behaviour, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, 
and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great to be with you sitting on a hill on this beautiful, sunny, warm Melbourne day. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Guy. Uh, I'm married. I have four kids uh, and the joy and privilege of serving uh, as the pastor here at City on a Hill, uh, a church that actually started in 2007. Uh, my wife and I were part of a small group Bible study. Uh, since then, we've seen God do immeasurably more than could ever think or imagine. Today, City on Hill is a movement of 10 churches meeting across city, uh, six cities, all united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. I want to send a special shout out to uh, friends who are joining us uh, online. In fact, here in Melbourne, why don't we make them feel welcome and put our hands together. Well, did you know that on the uh, 14th day of the Hebrew month Adar, Jewish people uh, around the globe gather for a religious festival known as Purim. Uh, of course, uh, Jewish people have other days in their calendar that they get together. But what separates Purim uh, from all the other days is its unashamed commitment to joy and celebration. Uh, just this week, I uh, spoke to a friend, Dean, uh, who himself is Jewish, raised in a Jewish home, Jewish community, even served as a youth leader in his local Jewish synagogue and is part of some Jewish community organizations today. And I wanted to hear from him kind of firsthand his experience of the Purim festival. And, and without skipping a beat, he says, Guy, it's the happiest, joyous celebration, happiest day in all the year. It's a day when schools close and food trucks come out and jumping castles and people just gather together for this wild celebration. Uh, as you can see from the images there, uh, people get dressed up in their favorite costume. Right? So imagine that you could come as someone famous like Donald Trump or Lady Gaga, or you could come as someone dangerous and scary like Donald Trump or Lady Gaga, right? And you have fun. Um, uh, there, there, there are a few rituals that mark the celebration together. Uh, for example, families uh, make these huge gift baskets and they spend the day driving around, delivering it to their friends and family. Uh, it's a day of charity. And so Dean was saying there's a guy on his street, get this, who stands at his door with his checkbook. And anyone who knocks on his door on that day, he writes a check for them. Amazing. I asked Dean for his address for personal reasons, but it's a day of charity. It's also a day of uh, feasting. Endless food and actually endless 
wine. There's actually a, a tradition, an old Jewish tradition, that the adults are to drink to a point that they can no longer distinct, distinguish between the phrases, cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. In other words, they get a little bit drunk. If you're wondering if we're going to be you know, handing out alcohol at City on a Hill for this series, the answer is yes. Just in very little cups like this. Right? It's this feast, it's this celebration. Of course, what is the centerpiece of the Purim festival? Well, every morning and every night, families get together, friends get together, they go to the local synagogue and they hear God's word read. And which story do they gather to hear read out loud? It is, of course, the story of Esther. And, and Dean was explaining to me that to really kind of bring the story to life, uh, whenever the kind of the evil character Haman is mentioned, everybody, kids and adults, like stand their feet and boo and hiss. And whenever the heroes, you know, Mordecai and Esther uh, are mentioned in the story, everybody claps their hands and, and erupts in these loud cheers. So I thought we could get in the mood a little bit. Let me hear your loudest, scariest, passionate boo. <laughs> Not bad. All right, let me hear your, your loudest cheer. Hey, that's, that's so much better, so much better. Hey, I want you to know that this is an interactive story and, and, and as God's people, we're not spectators, we're invited to participate. So if you want to cheer and amen or boo and hiss, be my guest. I'm a preacher, I'm used to both, right? Right, so, so let's get at it. And, and so the question though, of course, is like, so what is the reason for the celebration and the happiness and joy that surrounds this book? You know, what is it about the story of, of Esther? Because it's not just about, you know, fancy dress and food truck. What is it about this story that has brought such hope and joy and comfort for generations? Well, if you have a Bible handy, today we're going to be in the opening episode, chapter one. Love you to go there. Um, we dive right in, in verse one. The narrator says, now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. So when the curtain drops on the story of Esther, we find ourselves amidst this royal Feast. The year is 483 BC, and we're in a palace of Susa from which the great Persian Empire ruled. Now, by way of background, uh, the Persian Empire started as a collection of nomadic tribes on the plains of Iran. Uh, and yet a guy named Cyrus, who'd come on to be Cyrus the Great, united those tribes and started defeating and conquering neighboring kingdoms and brought them under his rule. And of course, his great kind of rise to power happened in the year 539 BC when he, along with the Persian Empire, conquered the Babylonians. And it was a display of such dominance and power that the Persian Empire quickly established itself as the world superpower. 
Now, when we think of world superpowers today, we might think of the US, we might think of China, we might think of Russia. But at the time of Esther, no one in the world had ever seen such a dominant empire as Persia. No one had known a kingdom with such force and power. In fact, such was the vastness of their reign and rule that almost half of the world's entire population were under its control. And who do we meet at the top of the tree? King Ahasuerus, elsewhere known as Xerxes, which is the Greek name for the Hebrew word. Xerxes uh, was the fifth king of the Persian Empire, and he ascended the throne when he was 32 years of age. So basically, he's a millennial. And we'll learn a lot about this king in the coming weeks, but the one thing that's bursting from the opening chapter is his desire to showcase his wealth, his power, his Glory. It's not just that he has all of this wealth, power, influence, and glory. It's that he's desperate to make it known. So the narrator says, The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Right. In our day... Uh, the game of self-promotion is relatively straightforward. If someone of influence wants to broadcast how impressive they are, they just need their PR agent to snap a picture of them on their private jet or, 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 or even better, uh, get a ticket to the Super Bowl with a seat right next to Taylor Swift. Right In that moment, everybody knows you're a somebody. But of course, we're talking about a different culture, a different generation. There's no Snapchat, no Instagram, no Facebook. Uh, I think they had MySpace, but that was just about it. So, so what do you do? How do you, how do you share your glory with the world? Well, you can't tweet something out. You have to invite people in. And so the king opens up the palace and he has this uh, huge showcase of his wealth and his glory for 180 days. Look at what I have. Look at what I, right? 180 days, and it all kind of culminates in this seven-day feast, right? And, and, and just in case you wonder, they're not holding back. This is seven days of the best wine, the most exquisite food. Uh, uh, the, the, the best entertainers in Persia are there. The who's who. Every, this is the place where most people are like, oh, I want to be there. And, and, and and look at the detail that the narrator paints for us in verse 6. They say there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver. And it just, this just goes on and on and on, this kind of decadent display. And you read this and you, you've got to ask yourself, wow, anywhere else in the Bible where we read of a building that is dripping with so much wealth and glory? And the answer to that, of course, is the temple. As Stephanie pointed out before, the temple was this central piece for the people of God. And, and all of its material and gold and marble all carried a spiritual significance. 
In the same way, we need to appreciate that the palace of the royal king in Persia not only marked a physical and political rule, but a spiritual and divine power. And, and, and that's actually crucial in understanding what is taking place in this feast. This feast, you know, days and days of eating and drinking, it, it's not just an act of hedonism in self-indulgence. It is that, but it's more than that. Because you need to appreciate that in this moment, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is seeking to gain support before his next military move. Right? To give you guys some context here, Xerxes' father was caught previously in a skirmish with the Greeks. And he lost. He was defeated. And, and so here's uh, Xerxes trying to establish himself. He wants to defend his father's honor. He wants to defeat and teach the Greeks a lesson. He wants to establish to everybody in the empire that he's the man. Right? And so, so we all know that you know, world domination comes with a hefty price tag that you've got to expand the military, you've got to send thousands and thousands and thousands of people to the front lines of war. And so how do you gain the support and obedience you need to make that step forward? With Xerxes, it's through a show of power, glory, and wealth. Right? In the same way that a politician or a business leader might wine and dine their key stakeholders. So Xerxes is, is wooing his people. He, it's not just that he's showing that he has the pockets to pay for the military advance. It's also that he's holding up the spoils of war. Hey, you, you keep close to me. This is what you can continue to enjoy. You support my will and my way. These are the things that we get to indulge in. And who's going to stop him? <laughs> I mean, the whole point of this opening scene is for us to kind of like, you know, almost like bend down and, you know, admire this power and dominance. I mean, who's going to get in the way? It seems like nothing or no one can, can stand against this king. But then we are introduced to a woman. And not just any woman. Vashti. Vashti is the queen in the Persian Empire. And this is where things take a turn. <laughs> Look to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So the king is drunk. The king's men are drunk as well. And let's be honest, drunk people make dumb decisions. Now, I must confess to you, it's not entirely clear what he's demanding from his wife at this point. Uh, Britt uh, was sharing with our staff that uh, in Veggie Tales, the king asks Vashti to make him a sandwich. <laughs> Cute. Uh, Actually, in, in, in Jewish tradition, a lot of commentaries today, 
they will point out that the king was actually asking the queen to strip down naked and parade before his drunken mates wearing nothing but a crown. Uh, Just as he was parading the gold and the platters of meat, so he appears willing to use and exploit his wife as an object of his power. This is a man who gets what he wants. Uh, Of course, the narrator doesn't kind of pause episode one to give us a running commentary at this point, but I'm sure we could all agree King's behavior is demeaning and degrading at best. Are all men like this? Of course not. There are many great men who use their power for good, but that ain't Xerxes. Um, Xerxes is a man-child intoxicated with his own lust and his own power. But look what happens next. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burnt within him. Uh, Why did Queen Vashti refuse? The obvious answer is that she was fed up with being treated like a piece of meat. She was fed up with the patriarchy and this was her moment to dig in her heels. Uh, Jewish tradition has a different take. They they don't necessarily see it as an act of feminist pride, actually uh, a point of vanity. It's suggested that she was not comfortable in her skin that day and so therefore felt uh, unwilling to parade herself before. Uh, Truth is, we don't know. The narrator doesn't explain her reasons, nor are we told how to read her refusal. And I believe that's because this chapter isn't in the Bible to give us a lesson on gender studies. It's not in the Bible to give marriage advice and the do's and don'ts of being in a relationship. The whole point of this chapter is actually to set the stage for Esther and showcase to us all that amidst all of this wealth, prosperity and power is a king who is dangerous and easily unhinged. Did you see his response to Vashti's refusal? Verse 12, we're told the king became what? Enraged, angust. Uh, I mean, here's a guy who is at the apex of his power. He's he's young, he's got money and wealth and women and fame. And like, he has what most people in the world today are chasing after. And yet you look behind the purple curtain and what do you see? You see this fragile, insecure man who is sinking and seething in his own displeasure. And what do insecure and fragile men do when they feel dishonored? They lash out in revenge. Now, if you cast your eyes over verse 15 through to the end of the chapter, you'll see that Vashti is removed. On account of her defiance, she's stripped of her crown, banished from the palace. We also see that she's going to be replaced, and I quote, by someone 
better. And if that's not enough, the king's council comes up with this harebrained idea that Vashti's disobedience could inspire other women to burn their bras and revolt against the men in this empire. And so in this outburst of male fragility, these knuckleheads scratched together a royal decree that sent out across the empire and read to every household. Right? It not only trashes Vashti's reputation, but reminds everybody of the place of men and the consequence for defiance. The decree, let's be honest, is ludicrous. But so is the king. In verse 21, we're told this advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did, as Memekin proposed. Ah, papers are signed, the law is sealed, and Vashti is banished for good. Striking turn of events. Uh, The chapter begins with this elaborate celebration that looks like a scene out of the great Gatsby. And yet, and yet, no sooner do we drink the champagne that we find an empire and a king who is fragile and unhinged. So you say, Guy, what is the point in all of this? Uh, When you kind of step back and look at this opening chapter as a whole, what are we to learn? Well, perhaps the first and most obvious point is that this kingdom is not only vast and powerful, but unpredictable and incredibly dangerous. Despite all the pomp and ceremony, the empire of Persia is not a safe place, especially for women and those who are marginalized and deemed small. So in next week's episode, Esther will arrive on the scene and spoiler alert, she'll be elected queen. But this isn't your Disney princess story. This isn't, uh, you know, when she's handpicked, handpicked by the, uh, the king, our response isn't hip, hip, hurrah. It's oh no. Here's a young, orphaned, marginalized girl with a different heritage walking into a den of lions. And that speaks to her experience, but also the many other people who are scattered across the empire at this time. As uh, Stephanie uh, explained, the people of God are living in Persia and they're trying to work out how to live, how to do life, how to worship, how to remain faithful. And so how do you do that when you're immersed in such a worldly and dominant and all-consuming culture? How do you remain true to what you believe when the people in charge are not only intoxicated with their own power and glory, but are willing to crush you like a bug at any sign of defiance? 
I'm sure there's been many times in your life where you have felt small and vulnerable. And perhaps you have looked at those in authority and power and felt threatened by their presence. Now that power may have come from the form of government or a teacher at school. That power uh, could have been by a police officer, a religious leader, could even be from a family member at home. It's a frightening experience to feel unsafe. And yet that is the emotion that we are to take into this story. Of course, the other observation we make from this opening chapter, note this, is that the king's power is not only dangerous, but also foolish and fleeting. The king's power is dangerous, but it's also foolish and fleeting. Karen Jobes, um, who's written a brilliant commentary on this book, which I highly recommend, points out that when the original audience read the story of Esther, they would have already known that just four years later, Xerxes would in fact go into battle against the Greeks. But they would have also known that he would have suffered a crushing and humiliating defeat that emptied him of all his wealth. In other words, despite this elaborate, extravagant introduction, they already knew that all of his gold went to dust. Don't miss that. The kingdoms of this world may appear strong and even seductive, But the point in Esther is that worldly power is fleeting and the days of worldly kingdoms are numbered. Whether we're talking about the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, whether we're talking about the superpowers today or the powers that will rise up tomorrow, they will rise and they will fall. Why is it, you say, that the original audience could could read the book of Esther with a smile? Why is it that people could read this story with all its dark edges and sinister plots and still celebrate every, every turn and twist? It's because they knew how the story ends. It's because they knew that the low and humble are lifted up And the proud and powerful are brought down. A few weeks ago, I took our family, my wife and our kids, to the movies and we saw Willy Wonka. Who's seen Willy Wonka? All right, about three of us. It's popular. (laughs) Our youngest daughter, she's seven, walking on in. I have to let you know, it was the fourth time that she'd seen it. And that's kind of interesting because it's quite a scary movie for a little kid, right? Yes, Willy Wonka and he's, you know, he's, he's trying to bring joy to the world with his chocolate and all this great stuff. But, but there are these scary characters, three corporate villains, you know, vying together to go against him. There's a corrupt priest. There's a corrupt cop, right? At every turn, it's like, oh no, he's, what's going to happen? And And so some of these scenes are dark and scary. And yet I look over to Lily and what do I see? 
her on the edge of her seat, eyes open, beaming smile. It's a musical. She knows every single line. She sang through the whole thing. Why? She knows how the story ends. She knows how the story ends. I don't know if you've picked up a Bible lately, but one of the things you'll discover if you flick the pages is that God tells us how the story ends. I'm not big on spoilers. Spoiler alert, Jesus wins. Amen? Kingdoms will rise. The devil will snarl. Sin will consume and even be seductive. And we think sin, Satan and death, like every worldly empire, every worldly kingdom is coming down. Could you imagine if we were so familiar with the story of the Bible, so familiar with every single line that we could, as the apostle Paul did, rejoice in all suffering? Look, on this side of heaven, don't get me wrong, I don't want to sugarcoat reality or the season you're in. On this side of heaven, there is going to be challenge and strife and difficulty. The whole book of Esther is helping you see that. We'll get into that topic. There is evil in this world, waging war and seeking to cut people down. And that's like, let's not sugarcoat, that's hard. You feel that's hard. It's painful. I love how the Apostle Paul, you know, I mean, they were surrounded by this dominant worldly empire and hardship and disappointment at every turn. And yet, what does he say? What can Christians say? Hey, we are hard pressed on every side. Two Corinthians, we bring it up. Hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but never destroyed. You know who can say that? People of God. Because we know how the story ends. One final point (laughs) that I want to leave you with before uh, we close this chapter. Did anyone notice who is missing from the opening chapter? I mean, if this was a musical, (laughs) the opening scene is full of colourful characters. The king's there, the queen's there, the, the, the council's there, there's dancers, there's chefs, there's... Bar- like it's, it's full of all of these colourful characters. And yet who's missing? Esther. Esther, she's coming. Who else is missing? God. In the entire opening chapter, there is no mention of God. Like, well, surely chapter 2. Nope, no mention of God there either. What about chapter three, chapter four? You can go throughout this entire book and you will not find one mention to God. Almost every other book of the Bible starts with God. There's the temple, there's an angel, there's a a vision, there's a prophet, there's a prophecy, something to put God at the center of the stage. And yet Esther is the one book in which None of that appears, and there is no mention of the name of God. Is that a mistake? 
right? Did, did, I mean, think about it. Like, did the person who wrote the story of Esther write it, put it out, proofread it, send it to print, and then go, uh-oh, I've missed something? Is that what's happened here? Right? And, and I must say that the apparent absence of God in this book has been a point of great controversy. A lot of religious people don't know what to do with it. John Calvin, who like preached every single day of his life, didn't preach on the book of Esther, I'm told. Martin Luther, the great reformer, dismissed the book of Esther, uh, and I quote, because he felt it was full of pagan naughtiness. <laughs> no, we're not doing this book. Too much pagan naughtiness. Some were so disturbed by the apparent absence of God that they rewrote the whole book again and added on in a hundred additional verses to make up for these religious deficiencies. <laughs> Just so you know, that's missing the point. <laughs> the absence of God's name in this book is not a mistake but a brilliant and deliberate attempt to reveal a profound insight about the character of God, namely his providence. What is divine providence? Divine providence refers to the hidden hand of God who works behind the curtain of life to guide and govern all things according to his good and pleasing will. In other parts of the Bible, we see, like Exodus, what do we see? Flashes of thunder, huge signs and miracles. He delivers his people through the Red Sea. It's vital, however, for you to recognize that God not only works through the visible and spectacular, but also the hidden and unseen. The story of Esther reveals to us all that even in a godless empire where God appears absent and life is marked by these unexpected twists and turns of events and coincidences, he's there. God is there and God is working. I mean, take this opening chapter. A pagan king just so happens to host a feast to serve his own political ambition and it just so happens that at this feast, he gets drunk. And in his drunkenness, he just so happens to call his wife to do something. And it just so happens that she refuses, which of course leads to her dismissal and provides that opening for Esther's arrival. Now, on one look at this, you're, you're not really kind of seeing the hand of God. And yet you zoom out and you realize that all of these moments will be instrumental in God's purpose and plan, whether through great flashes of thunder or seemingly insignificant events, God is always working through his people to save and heal the world. He's always working. That's why I love this book. It's going to be one of my favorite books in the Old Testament because it's a reminder to me, God is working. I'm sure there are times in your life like me where you look around and say, where is God? I'm sure you read events in the evening news or 
go through the rhythms at work and you say, I feel like God is distant and God is silent. What we discover in the Bible is that God's absence is never true. His voice is never silent. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not active in your life. Just because you can't feel him doesn't mean he isn't alive and working right now. The good news of the Bible is that God is here. God is working through his people. God is working in and through his church. God is working across the world. He is working through the miraculous and the mundane, the extraordinary and the ordinary. He works in the natural rhythms of life and those unexpected twists and what we might call chance encounters. When I reflect on the providence of God I just can't help but think about even the origins of this church I mentioned you know 2007 and those who've been part of our church for a while know like here I was with my wife Vanessa walking through the docklands looking for a venue that we might one day happen to meet in Um, we end up it just so happened you know it was raining that night not so unusual for Melbourne but it was raining that night and we just so happened to kind of walk on into the James Squire Brewery and my wife and I go there and we look around and think, wow, this, is, this would be an ideal venue for, for a church to, to meet in. The very next day, it just so happened that I was scheduled to do an interview up the front of a, in a church, uh, the oldest Anglican church in Melbourne called St. James Old Cathedral. Just so happened I was being interviewed and about this possible church and No cloud of glory that day. No gold dust filling the air. There was like 17 people there. But it just so happened that there was a couple there who were from Sydney. Just so happened to be in town. Just so happened to hear the church bells and just so happened to walk on in. And they hear about this vision. They come up to me and say, we'd love to help. Say, great, what did you have in mind? They said, well, we own this venue in the Docklands. It's called the James Squire Brew House. Would you like to use it free of charge? Now, you look at that on one level, you say, oh, gee, what a stroke of luck. All of those coincidences, all of those things going together. But that's not how a Christian thinks. We see the hidden hand of God. We recognize how he orders events and orders our steps to further his purpose and his plan. God is active in our world. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have choices and real decisions to make. We're going to see in the book of Esther, there's lots of defining moments that require courage and all of that. But we rest in the hand of God. We rest in the one who, Paul says, works all things for the good of those who love him. So as the band comes up, let me say this. If you grasp this truth today, If you welcome the truth of God's providence, of his hidden and unseen moments, uh, it will radically change your life. It really would. Right? Let let me me break that down. Uh, For example, when you look back on your life, on your past, and reflect on the experiences you had and where you went and, and what you learned. You, you don't just ride that off as just whatever. You know, you are, you're curious before God, curious about what you've experienced and what that means for, for who you are and who he's creating you to be. 
And so you go into your future with a sense of expectation and openness. Or what about those chance encounters that we have every day of our week? You run into a neighbor or a barista or that friend you haven't seen in months. You won't just write that off as a chance encounter. You'll see the hidden hand of God and be curious to seek his purpose and and walk in step with his will. Or what about when you're scrolling the evening news? You won't tune out at that moment, but tune into God's promise. Lord, how are you working in this? And when you find yourself in those hard seasons, which we all do, when you find yourself walking in that valley and life sucks and things are hard and there's disappointment at every corner, you will feel that, right? Christians don't just sugarcoat and like, like you really feel that. But maybe, just maybe you like Job could say, Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be his name. There's significance. There's a meaning. He is working. And even when you go through your week, you're off to work tomorrow or university or school or the next, Maybe you feel like God is distant. You'll anchor yourself in the presence of God and say, Lord, I'm here and you are here. Help me draw near to you because I know you are working. I know you're alive. I know that you care. Don't we see this at play in the life and work of Jesus himself? As you consider the circumstances of Jesus' birth and his life and indeed his death, There's a lot of that to us that doesn't make sense. A lot that seems random. A lot that might have us saying, where is God? Because unlike Xerxes, Jesus didn't come in pomp and ceremony. He just so happened to be born in a cheap motel covered in rags. Unlike Xerxes, who had the affirmation and honour of his empire, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. And unlike Xerxes, who clung to his power in Jesus, we see one emptying himself and serving others. And yet it is in this poor, marginalized, unexpected servant that the hand of God was at work. Weaving together every prophecy, every plan, every purpose and promise. This is a God you can trust, a king you can worship. This is the one that you can rest in today and indeed the one that we can rejoice and celebrate with. So I invite you to stand now. We're going to do just that. Uh, There'll be some people available uh, down the front for prayer. God's at work. He doesn't want you to draw away. He wants you to lean in. It could be that you're feeling a sense of distance from God, a sense of absence. What a great prayer to pray. What a great opportunity to come to God and call for a renewal of His Spirit in your heart and your mind. A blessed reminder that He is there and He is with you. And at the same time, we're going to sing. And if you have a reason to celebrate today, 
then let me encourage you to clap your hands, to rejoice and to celebrate Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen? Amen.